Good morning, and how are y'all doing today? Good. Welcome to Hope. We are glad that you're here. Take your Bibles, your device, or whatever you have this morning. It is John chapter 8 today. We continue in our series back from Advent and last year being our New Year's challenge to to work our way through the book of John. So we're in John chapter 8. We've been doing this for, I, I counted them up. This is part 12, and we've only made it to chapter 8. What does that say to you? That says that we will most likely not finish this before May. We'll have to sell for the rest another year, I guess. But it's so chock full of amazing stuff for you and I to, to talk about and to learn as God speaks into our lives And so today we look at chapter 8, specifically verses 1 through 11, and then as an epilogue, we look at verses 8 through 12 to simply come alongside verses 1 through 11. I'll explain that all in just a moment. So today, alone with mercy. And and so it's very interesting, this week, um, our son Grayson has been home from college. He goes back this morning, he leaves, and so... um, we, we decided that, well, we want to go see a movie, a man movie kind of thing, right? And, and we knew that uh, the movie 1917 was out, and, and so we love war movies and history. So we went to that Thursday night on the premiere night. Well, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but the theater not too far from us, it now has recliners in it. Did you know that? This is amazing, right? And not just recliners, but they're heated recliners. yes. A recliner that's heated translates into my life sleep is what that says. So I pay almost $12 to take a nap for two hours, right? Yes. And so they have recliners. So we went to the opening of 1917, the three of us, uh, Bradley, Grayson, and myself. And uh, it's packed. It's, it's sold out. They get to sit together. I have to sit alone next to a stranger. And it's kind of odd if you have gone now since they've changed the seating that you share the same armrest with someone you don't know and you recline next to someone you don't know. Your feet go up, your back go ba- goes back like this, you know, and I look over to my right and I'm looking straight into a stranger's eyes. It's very weird. It is. I felt like I was watching TV in my bed at home with a stranger. It was odd. It, it really was. Well, I didn't know who he was. And, and you know, it, we didn't introduce ourselves because we were there to watch a movie, not to make friends. And, and so we, you know, the movie starts and he smuggles in food. Now, I don't know if you've ever smuggled in food to the theater. So time to be honest for a moment of confession, okay? Here it is. How many have ever gone to the theater and you smuggled in your own food? Raise your hand, okay? See that? Look, look at these people, criminals next around us this morning, right? Smugglers, right? And so he smuggles in food. Well, some foods are appropriate for the theater. Some foods just don't belong in the theater. Well, he smuggles in Pringles potato chips is what he does. Now, here's the thing. Pringles are a loud food. I don't care how you chew it, how you get it out of the container, how you consume it. You put it in your mouth and you dissolve it. No, that doesn't happen. So he begins to eat Pringles right next to me. We're lying there in this very almost intimate setting I felt like right yes and he's eating eating he's like eating in the bed with me and it's weird it's and it's crunching and it's getting louder and louder I'm getting more frustrated I don't know what to do because it doesn't belong in the theater I begin to pray God remove this man is what I begin to pray 
And about 30 minutes into the movie, all of a sudden, he puts his feet down. The, the back comes up, and he grabs his coat, and he just leaves. And I never see him again, you know, right? And so God does answer prayer. Yes, he does. I don't know where he went and, and, and what happened. I didn't say anything to him. I didn't put out any bad vibes, if you want to call that. But it just, it just doesn't fit of him chomping on Pringles the whole time while I'm trying to enjoy this movie. There's some very quiet moments. When we read, what, Mark, what does this have to do with Luke, or John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11? It's, it has a lot to do with it. Because when we read these verses, what we're told by theologians is that these eight verses in John chapter 1 through 8, that they actually don't belong there. It's what we're actually told by theologians. That we have 11 verses of this scandalous, extravagant, reckless mercy and grace. And these 11 verses for centuries now have been shrouded in suspicion and debate. Why do people say they don't belong here? Actually, it's, actually it's 7 and 53 through that of John 8, 1 through 11 are those verses. Why? Because when you look at the original Greek manuscripts, they're not found there. This story is not found in those manuscripts at all. So it's debated by textual critics for years. It's not consistent with what they say is John's writing style. It's more like how Luke would simply record an event. But yet it's found here in John and only in John and not any other Gospels. So the debate is not that it just belongs or where does it belong in our current scriptural canon, but yet where does it even belong in the book of John? Yet our forefathers, for some reason, thought it very advantageous for you and I to have this story, a very true story about the life of Christ, that we should experience it. And it is an experience. It really is an amazing experience. And that's the word. Because the wording in this, this narrative of the woman caught in adultery, the wording in this narrative, it draws you in. It literally sucks you into the very moment of that morning with Jesus and that crowd and this woman. You become indignant toward the crowd that brings her and throws her in the midst of all of these men are standing around her. And, and, and your heart hurts for her. It does. And why they would treat any human being, much less this poor woman, in this way. And then also maybe that you have this disillusionment about her acts and what she's been caught in, that of adultery. And then you hear these words of Jesus and all of a sudden there's awe that comes over you of the mercy and the grace that God shows her in the middle of this moment. And and so you you begin to look at that and, and we realize that, no, this story is about us and this story is for us. Because at some point, in fact, the text uses in the midst that she was thrown into. And you and I have found ourselves in the midst of shame at some point. We have. We found ourselves in the midst of guilt within our lives because of sin within our lives. It fits very well. So today, as we look at these 11 verses, that you be the judge of it, not of its inspiration, because we truly believe and hold to the fact that it is inspired by God and it is here for you and I. The Holy Spirit speaks to us through these words, but you be the judge as to its place in your own life, as to where it fits within your life. That you let the words that we read in a moment resonate within your own soul. I, I, I dare say that it will inspire you and, and it will bring you to a moment of brokenness within your lives if you truly place yourself into this setting. So I broke it up in scenes for us to look at this morning together. So scene number one, there's four scenes. Scene number one is this. Jesus sets the scene for extravagant mercy. It's John chapter 7 verse 53, and then we go to 8 and verse through 
verse 2. It says this, and it's in brackets. If you look at it in your Bible, it's in brackets because it tells you that it's not listed in or not found in the original manuscript. So it says this, that they went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down, and he taught them. So let me set the stage for you for a moment as we talk about this narrative together this morning. It takes place, if you read chapter 7 later on, what you realize it takes place right here on the very last day of what is called the Feast of Booths, a celebration that in Jerusalem of, of the Jewish people. And, and on this day, the very last day, the chief priests and the Pharisees, they all come to the temple, they meet with their servants, and Jesus is coming on that day because it is established as a Sabbath. The last day of that of the the Feast of Boots is called a Sabbath. It's a day of rest. And so he's coming there early in the morning to teach those near the temple. And these 11 verses, when you look at this, even if we say they're not written by John, and a lot of people call them patchwork, that is somehow just kind of stuck into that of, of the book of John. They fit perfectly into this Feast of Boots that John has talked about in chapter 7. Because during this Feast of Boots, what we realize is this, that on the, on the evening of each night of this feast, what happens is they take one lamp and they bring it into the temple courtyard. In fact, they bring it into what is called the courtyard of the women. And they bring it and they sit it there in the middle of that courtyard. And the idea of this lamp is that from that one lamp, and it's a, it's a powerful thought, from that very one lamp that all the courtyards and all of Israel are lit from that very one lamp. It's a, it's a greater image of a greater light. And what it refers to is it refers back to in remembrance for them of when the children of Israel were in the wilderness. They had simply escaped. God has rescued them from Egypt and they find themselves in the wilderness. And so what God does, he sends them a cloud by day to shade them. But what does he give them at night? A pillar of what? Of fire. He gives them a pillar of fire to guide them through the wilderness in the night. And it's a celebration of God's faithfulness in that. And so when you begin to look at that, if you jump down for a moment, which I call these verses the epilogue, and they are supportive of these first 11 verses. If you look at verse 12, it says this, and again, Jesus spoke to them saying, look what he says. I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus being the light of the world. If we ever thought, oh, these verses of 1 through 11, this story doesn't fit. Oh, they fit exactly. Because that's the story of Jesus, of this crowd, and this woman caught in the act of adultery. Because what happens is this, Jesus sets this opportunity to reveal that he is the light to the brokenness and the darkness of the world that you and I live in. And during this narrative that we're going to read through in a moment, Jesus reveals that, that he's the light to all mankind. That it's not that he's, he's a reminding them of that, of what happened in Exodus, but he is going back and saying what happening, it happens in Exodus, that of the pillar of fire, it should remind you of me. It was a sign. God was giving you a sign that one day there would be a light that would come into the world that would light all the world, not just the children of Israel. It's such a powerful thought for you and I. That he is the light of the world. He's come into the world not just to rescue us. He uses a term here in verse 12. And he says he's the light of life. And what that means is this. That Jesus is more than just a light at the end of the tunnel. 
But what he is in our life is this. He's a light so powerful that he simply brings the path of escape for you and I so that we don't have to live in darkness, so that you and I don't have to continue to live in the sin of our lives, that he doesn't just rescue us, but yet he brings us into a place in our life that we no longer have to live in darkness. It is a powerful thought that he says. So what we realize is this, in this story of this woman caught in adultery, oh, it is about Jesus revealing himself as the light of the world. It's powerful. It is. And it unfolds right before our very eyes. So the second scene I call is this. It's motive does matter. Look at verse 3 because you're going to find out that's going to make sense in a moment when we read these verses. Verse 3 said this. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. No, listen, it's not about a debate whether she is guilty or not. But what we understand is this. It's not an accusation. She's been caught in the very act. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery, now in the, um, now in the law. And, and what, 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 what they're saying to him, and I think it's really interesting, is this, that they're going to school Jesus in the law, but what they don't realize who Jesus is, right? That he is the giver of the law. He is the one that spoke to Moses and gave Moses the law. He is. It's like, I don't know if you've ever, when you go to the doctor and, you know, and the doctor takes all your symptoms, your temperature, your blood pressure, and then all your symptoms, he writes all of those down, that how many of you have already Googled online what's wrong with you, right? Yes. Yes, and while the doctor is sitting there saying something to you about, well, it could be this or it could be that, you come back with, well, I Google this, and this is what I think is the problem with me, is what it is, right? And what he really wants to say is, well, if you've Googled it, you don't need me. Just pay me the $180 and go home, right? That's it. No, but what, what we don't realize, or what they don't realize is, they're talking to the one that gave the law. Yes, they don't understand who he is. So now in the law, they say Moses commanded us to stone such women. When I read that term, such women, boy, it brings some indignation inside of me because it is such a, it is such a slanderous type of term. So what do you say, they say to him? And this they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him because motive does matter, and it matters greatly. Jesus bent down and he wrote with his finger on the ground. So we take this larger view of what's going on for a moment together. We do. This is early in the morning. Early in the morning that he comes to the temple to teach the people. And then I begin to to think, and as I I begin to read about this from, from commentators and theologians, what we realize is that most likely the act of adultery had taken place the night before. So what that says to us is that they have held this woman all night long. They have held her for some reason all night long because when you look at the law and we understand historically what would have happened, if you're caught in the act of adultery, then what happens is they bring you out of wherever you are and they stone you immediately because there's no need for trial. No, but they have some purpose for retaining her all night long and they don't execute her. Why? It's because their motive. They're waiting for Jesus. They're wanting to catch Jesus. They're wanting to trap him. Their motive is not some loyalty to the law of Moses. It's not that at all. There's no grace. There's no mercy here at all and then it says that she's cast in the midst of them ah can you imagine and and this is why the story brings you in can you imagine the fear that's in her life this is about publicly humiliating her is what this is about not carrying out some rule of the law this broken sinful woman surrounded by this 
crowd of what I would call chauvinistic men because they use the term such women. Understand that. Can I pause for a moment and say something to all the men in the room today? And it's this. All women that are in your life, all women in general, are to be treasured in life. If you misuse them, can I tell you, if you abuse them, you will answer to God. Understand that. You need to understand that. That you will answer to God. And so when I see this woman, she's in the midst of all of these men surrounding her. And, and, and they use terms like this such woman, that, that such a degrading term. Uh, we're granted this front row seat at this, this scene. And you can feel this indignation rising in your life. What do you want to do? You, you, want, you want to step in and you want to do something to help her is exactly what. The story is so real on our, in our lives in so many levels. Yes. But when I begin to read this. I begin to think in the back of my mind, there's something missing here. <laughs> there's something missing. Here's the crowd. Here's the woman that was caught in adultery. Here's Jesus. But there's an element that is missing. Have you ever thought what it is? It's the man. <laughs> right? <laughs> Where is he? Right? Exactly. Because it takes two. Right? It does take two. We understand that. So this is not about justice. This is injustice at its height. There's no zeal for righteousness here at all. No, there's a form of shallow righteousness. No concern for the soul of this woman at all. Most likely the crowd that is surrounding her, these men populated by those men that have probably committed adultery themselves. They've just never been caught. So what's, you know, everything is wrong about this scene. It's shrouded in deception and, and it's shrouded in some kind of uh, of a motive that is very unpure on their parts. So everything seems to be wrong. But there are two things we know here that are true. Two things. One is this. She's guilty. We know that. Yes. That's never debated in the text. That she is guilty. The second thing we know is that the very light of life, the path to freedom is standing before her. Can I tell you this morning? Religion apart from grace and mercy, always results in hypocrisy. Realize that. Religion, apart from grace and mercy, will always result in hypocrisy in your life. Yes. And so I said, you know, I, I've heard this story growing up in church. I've, I've heard this story most of my life, and, and it's always been uh, about the grace that God shows. And yes, I just can't discount that. But, but as I began to think about this and read this, what I realized that there is even something as miraculous and as marvelous as the grace that is shown. And if we're not careful, we miss this other truth. And that is that in this process, as we read through this narrative, that Jesus exalts himself above the law of Moses. And I think that's a very, very powerful thought. Because what Jesus does, he reestablishes righteousness. That righteousness is not based upon a list of rules. That righteousness is not based upon what the crowd thinks or what other people might think about you. But righteousness, he reestablishes righteousness on the foundation of grace. On the foundation of grace. That you and I are found righteous in the sight of God. Not because of what we do. And not because of we keeping all the rules. And not because we attend church every Sunday morning. And we pay our tithing. Not because of all of those kinds of things. But we are found righteous before God. Because that righteousness is founded in grace. And any righteousness in my life or your life. That simply is not, it's not founded in grace. Is a work of my own. 
And what the Bible says about my own righteousness, it's like what? Filthy rags. So Jesus reestablishes righteousness right here before this crowd. And he said, no, no, it's not based upon this law. It's not based upon these rules. He's not debating the guilt of this woman. Not at all. That's not it at all. But he reestablishes righteousness based on the foundation of grace. Yes, then what he's saying is this, and I begin to think what he's saying is this, that, that not only is he greater than Moses, not only is he as greater than the prophets, boy, but he's firing them up when he's saying these things, you know, in these words, as we're going to read in a moment. Not only is he greater than the law or the Pharisees, but most importantly is this, that he's greater than the sin of adultery is what he's saying. Yes, he's greater than guilt. God is greater than guilt. And, 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 and there's so many of you that sit in here this morning and you carry guilt day after day within your life. Guilt that's already been paid for by Jesus on the cross. And you carry that day in and day out as if you feel like somehow that it's your punishment. That's your punishment for the things that you've done in life. Can I tell you something? Listen, your punishment was born upon the cross of Calvary. Jesus took it to the cross for you and for me. The only person that places guilt upon you is the enemy of your life. Because guilt in your life always results in something unedifying and very negative, And it will make you simply angry at everything around you. God came to set you free from guilt. That he's greater than the guilt. He's greater than the shame of this woman in her life. Oh, listen. We've all done something we're ashamed of. Yes, we have. Uh, all of you that smuggle food into the theater, right? Yes. Yeah, no, I'm just kidding. Okay, uh, just kidding. Uh, uh-huh. that, that we all have done something that we're ashamed of in life. Can I tell you, when Jesus establishes himself greater than that of Moses and the law, what he's saying is, I'm greater than sin, and I'm greater than shame, and I'm greater than the guilt, even the guilt and the shame of this adulterous woman that is in the midst of us. Oh, it's such a powerful thought. So if you go down to verse 13, which is the epilogue, which supports these first 11 verses, here's what John says. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going, he confirms. He confirms the fact that they don't know who he is, not just in person, but they don't know that he is the Son of God. In this culture, it takes two witnesses to confirm something being truth, is what it takes. Yes, Jesus knows absolute truth about himself. That's not confirmed just in him, but that's confirmed through the relationship he has with the Father. And so what they're doing is they're judging Jesus by human standards. Yes, and I think what we do is we become so focused on them judging the woman and her sin that what we miss is the fact that they're judging Jesus. They're judging Jesus. Yes, listen, we've all done this at some point. We've all tried to judge God and his actions in our lives. We have. We've all tried to judge God and his grace and his mercy for our lives as it is absolutely impossible to really understand how God forgives and loves us in the way that he does. Yes. It's like, it's like you and I, when we judge God in human standards, it's like you and I trying to measure the straightness of a line with a crooked limb from a tree that we found in our backyard. It just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. 
And we can't do it. And exactly what the Pharisees in this group of people are doing with Jesus that very day. They're trying to judge him according to human standards. And he goes on to say in verse 15, you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Now, this can be confusing because he says in verse 16, yet if even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Now, you've got to keep in mind the graciousness of God, the character of God and who he is and understand his very heart and his mind for you and I. Yes, but what this does, this crowd judges on mere appearance. That's how humans judge. Jesus doesn't do that. He judges us on the reality of who we are. Yeah, he does. Did you know that Jesus does judge us? Mark, I don't want to hear that, right? You know, we, we, don't, we, we, don't, we want to live in a judgment-free zone. Isn't that right? Yes. Then go to Planet Fitness if you want to do that, right? Yes. Just don't, don't slam the weights down. You get the big red buzzer and somebody yells at you to don't do that. And don't grunt when you lift anything for sure, you know, because then you get yelled at for doing that because it's a judgment-free zone because you may make someone feel like they're being judged because of that. Can I tell you, I don't want to live in a judgment-free zone. I don't. Because here's the thing I understand about God and how God does judge us in life is this. What God does is he reveals the truth. And then in my life, in your life, he reveals the truth to us. And then he points out the distance from the, from the truth that you and I are living. That we have to have that in our life. He doesn't condemn us. But he does point out to us when we're wrong in life. I need that. Because, hey, I've been wrong a couple of times. I have. No, I've been wrong a lot. Yes, I have been wrong a lot. And I have to do that. He points out, he reveals the truth, and he points out the distance that I am from the truth is what he does. And then he, he helps me. He draws me. He matures me. And he grows me to simply work toward that truth. I, I realize that's how God works in our lives. Yes, And so when I begin to read this verse, this story about Jesus and this crowd and this woman caught in the act of adultery, uh, what I realize is this, that there's mercy. There's mercy shown toward this crowd of hypocrites and chauvinists, as well as the woman in the middle of all of them. Yet this woman is guilty, guilty. And there's no absolute debate over that at all. Yes. And so... I look at this grace and this mercy that God shows in in the middle of pointing out truth and then how far we are from the truth. And in the middle of all this illogical and reckless and 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 relentless mercy and grace that we've never seen before that I, I would handle things different. If I were Jesus that day, I would handle everything's different. I would. I would become I, I thought about this. I would become Jesus the Jedi is exactly what I would become. Right. Yes. In the middle of all of this, I would pull out my lightsaber and that crowd of people that would been around them, you know, we would have doubled the number of people there because I would just cut everyone in half and been done with it. Absolutely. Yes. Because I would tell that's what they absolutely deserve. But here's what Jesus does. Here's what he does is so different from us. That when he judges them, he reveals the truth and then he shows them how far they are from the truth. So that's mercy. 
And that's grace in my life, in your life, that judgment of God upon us at times. That's, that's mercy and that's grace. Listen, an unjust God, an un, a cruel God would simply allow you and I to continue to live in the state that we live all the time and never point out where we are failing and never point out where we are wrong. So he points out the truth. He points out how far we are from the truth. And then he reveals himself as the truth. Yes. So for a moment, can we talk about this judging thing and how that looks for us? You say, Mark, I don't judge people. You know, I, I don't judge at all. That's a word we hear all the time. If you stare too long at people, they look at you and say, are you judging me? You know, and you don't even say a thing to them, right? Yes, yes. Our dog was staring at, at, at Grayson the other day. I mean, she, she was just sitting there looking at staring at and I, and I said, Grayson, you know what she's doing? And he said, what? I said, she's judging you. It's exactly what she's doing, yes. We, we use the word a lot in, in, our, in our culture. So we say, well, I don't judge people and I don't judge anything and, and I, because I know what Matthew 7 and 1 says. Well, most of you probably don't even know what it says but you are, are the, the reference, but you know what it says. It says, judge not, that you be not judged. I, I read an article that says that more people know Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1 than actually know John 3.16. Yeah. But if you go further down in the book of John, or, or Matthew 7 and 1, if you go further down in the book of Matthew chapter 7 and you read verse 15, it says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Oh, is that not judging? Wait, let's read on. Hang on. Are, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes? That makes a lot of sense. Are figs from the thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and cast into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Well, when I read that, what I realize as this story in the book of John teaches us a lot of things. And one of them is that we, we can judge. Oh, Mark, if, if I just left it like that, boy, that would just really leave you confused, wouldn't it? Let's pray and let's go home, right? Yes, because some of you have been looking for that excuse, right? Exactly. You're not only going to be judge, you're, you're jury and executioner too in people's lives. That's right. So what he says to us is we can judge evil from good. We can. Darkness from light. Bad fruit from good fruit. But never judge apart from grace and mercy. Do you hear that? Never judge. See, that's, that's John 8, 1 through 11. That they come and they want to judge her. But they're not judging her with any grace and mercy in, in their lives at all. So we can judge good from evil, darkness from light, bad fruit from good fruit. But never apart from grace and mercy. Understand that. Because we're never to conclude that a person is lost to God. We're never to write anybody off as if God cannot reach them. And that's simply what judgment without hope is about. And, and that's, God says that is sinful within our lives. No, but we do live our lives with our eyes open and our soul open to discern what is good and evil, to discern what is good teaching and not, what is discern what's good behavior and what's not, what is evil and what is good, what is edifying for our lives, that you don't enter a relationship in your life blindfolded. Can I tell you that? 
We, we used to, you know, we used to say love is blind. And I want to tell you, sometimes what it means is our emotions are blind to the reality of things in life. That's right. So we go into things in life with our eyes wide open and we judge good from bad and darkness from light. We do that because we can't allow those decisions in our life to be fueled by our hearts and the hurts of our lives. So we can judge those things. So some of you want, to, you want to go back out and pull the bumper sticker off your car. You know, judge not, least you be judged. You know, that's the King James Version that we use. Most of us know that version, right? Yes. But the Bible does say that we can judge. But we can't judge apart from grace and mercy is what it's saying. That is important that you and I understand that. So it leads us this. So yet Jesus loves this woman and he loves the entire crowd. I think that's one of the most amazing parts about this. So how and why does Jesus respond the way he does? Because I'm perplexed. Look at verse 6 again. And we read through verse 9, finishing up the story in a moment. This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Their motives are absolutely impure. It's not about righteousness, but it's about being right. And Jesus bent down and he wrote with his finger on the ground. We've always been curious about that. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him, him who is at without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And our thought has always been nobody could do that. Nobody that was without sin in the crowd. So nobody can throw a stone yet. That is not abs- That's not completely true. There is someone there that can throw the rock. So we can't say that nobody was present that day that could, that, that could rightfully throw a stone at her. There is someone there in that group that can rightfully throw the stone that day. We have to understand that. And once more he bent down and he wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. She's guilty. I have to say that to you. And that's where we start. She is guilty. There's no doubt about that. But Jesus here, we think sometimes, well, he's a lawbreaker. He's going to break the law of Moses. No, no. Jesus is not a lawbreaker. He's a law fulfiller. Understand that. Because what this means is this. When he writes on the ground, this is the Sabbath. Okay, and on the Sabbath in that of the Jewish community and their religion and their rights is this, that on the Sabbath, it was a day of rest and they mean a day of rest. They really do. And so what that means is this. On that day of rest, you're never allowed to write more than two words. Never. Absolutely not. So if we were living in that kind of community today, then all of your texts that you sent would just be two-word texts. There would be nothing more than that, right? You could send an emoji. You think you'd get around it, I guess, what kind of thing, right? Yes, you'd be in trouble. But the law, this is the cool thing, the law does give provision for you to write in the dust with your finger. When Jesus does that, when he does that, it engages them like never before. They're looking to trip him up as a lawbreaker. He's a law fulfiller. They know what he's doing when he kneels down and he begins to write with his finger in the dust that they, that, that they understand that that's part of the law. And, and what does Jesus write? 
What, that, that's what we've always thought. You know, what does Jesus write on the ground? And we've always said, oh, he writes all their sins. He writes their names. He, he, does, he, does all the, he writes all the things that they've done that night before they shouldn't have done. He writes, I don't think that's important. What I think is important is why does he do that? I think that's what's important. And it's a text that maybe you've never read. It's in Jeremiah 17 and 13. There's a correlation between these two things. I read this for you today as we're kind of bringing this to a close in a moment. It's, it's Jeremiah 17 and 13. It says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth. Or another word that can be used there is in the dust. For they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. I want to say some things I think that are hard to you this morning. But I think it's things that we need to all hear. And as I, as I begin to study this text over and over, it began to resonate to me. And, and what Jesus is saying is this. The very same judgment that you are going to dispense to this woman for her adulterous, rea- her, her adulterous acts is the very same judgment that God is going to bestow upon you. That's what he's saying. Theologians think that he may have written out Jeremiah 7 and 13 because they would have understood what that meant. That any religious practice apart from grace and mercy always translates into harshness and never holiness in our life. In rejecting Jesus, they're rejecting God which would perhaps be the most shameful thing that could ever be done in a person's life. And it's an act worthy of death. Here's what I think Jesus is doing. I wrote this in my journal this week. Jesus is equating a merciless and graceless life with the act of unfaithfulness. They're one and the same. I think that's something that we have to chew on for a moment. That makes us uncomfortable. Makes our little butt squirm in the seat. It does, yes. That a merciless and graceless life is being equated to the act of this adulterous woman. It's a powerful thought. It really is. It's a thought that I think that we know already. We just are not reminded of it as much as we we should be. Because Jesus doesn't break the law of Moses. I mean, he's the very God that inspired the law of Moses. Yes, no. But that's what the crowd wants him to do. Understand this. If he if he breaks the law of Moses, then he is he's in trouble with the temple leaders. If he carries through with the execution, then he's in trouble with the Romans because they don't have the power or the authority to do that. And so what does Jesus do? This is the most powerful thing, I think, of the whole story. He fulfills the law in love. It's what Galatians 5 and 14 says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. If you read all of Matthew chapter 9, verses 12 through 13 and more, it says in there that God desires mercy and not sacrifice. Why do they walk away? I don't believe it's necessarily because Jesus begins to write all their sins out or all the things that they've done. They know that. 
But I think what Jesus does, he begins to point out their misuse of the law, the lack of mercy and the lack of grace, their misuse of God's intention for the law in the lives of the people of Israel, that righteousness and justice should be found in mercy and grace. And that's not what you get because what you get here is heartless hypocrisy. And then he says to her, and then he says to her, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. I go back to what I said a moment ago, that there is one that possesses the right to throw the stone. So the last thought is this, as we, as we bring this to a close this morning before we pray, scene number four, alone with mercy. It's verse 10, Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. She calls him and Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on, sin no more. And, and I begin to read about this. And, and sometime between A.D. 354 and 430, St. Augustine wrote about this very text. And, and he wrote this, The Two Were Left Alone, is the title of this, of this writing that he put together. And, and if, if I were good with Latin, I would read you the Latin words, but it would be, it would be terrible. So I will, I will spare you of that. But he simply says, this is mercy and misery is what it's called. It's mercy and misery. That Jesus stands from riding in the, the dirt and he asks for a report as if somehow he was oblivious of everything that was going on uh, around him. And he asks her regarding, he doesn't ask her regarding the charges or her guilt because that's something that's established. That's true. No, Jesus has already pointed out the truth and the distance from the truth for everybody in that gathering that day. But what I realize is this. She alone remains with this one who is without sin. She alone is with the one that is without sin. She is left alone with the only one that's qualified to stone her. Everybody else is left. Jesus has all the rights according to the law. He is qualified, according to the law, to stone her because he is without sin. Even to live by his own words, he is without sin. And if she knows who Jesus is because she calls him Lord, that there must be this moment in her life where she looks at him and he looks at her. And there must be this moment of uncertainty within her because she's alone with the one that has the right to cast the stone. That what's going to happen? And at that moment, Jesus looks at her and says, neither do I condemn you. And what I realize is this, that you and I live lifetimes, lifetimes of fretting over thinking about what people think about us and their opinion of us and how they judge us, we worship at the altar of their opinions of our lives, of our failures, of our faults, of the sins and the things that you and I have committed. But in life, there's only one. There's only one that has the right to throw any rocks toward you and I, and that is Jesus. And when he looks at us, what he says is, neither do I condemn you. We spend a lifetime worried about what others might think about the things that we have done in life. In reality, there's only one, and that is Christ. He is the only one, and he says, no, neither do I condemn you. I understand that. You're not perfect. You're going to mess up. There are going to be moments that maybe you should have have rocks thrown at you, but that's not what's going to happen. Because why? Because you've experienced mercy. And when you're alone with mercy, life is never the same. It's never the same. Does sin matter? Yes, it matters. 
Absolutely, it does matter in our life. It's destructive. God hates sin, loves you, but hates the things that harms us because he is our good father. So sin does matter. That's why he says, go and sin no more. But that no more part, it's not based on my ability to keep the rules because I've already proven I can't keep the rules at times. I understand that. God understands that. But it's based upon the presence of mercy in my life and your life. Understand that. Adultery is a breach of faithfulness. God is faithful even in the breaches of our unfaithfulness. He never says this one is lost. He never says give up on this one. Never. But he is always absolutely faithful. This precious broken woman. And I finish. I wrote so much on this. <laughs> this week. That I could have given you a book this morning. And I had to go through again this, this morning in my office. Early this morning at 6. And man I got pencil marks all over this thing. Where I just, I just like penciling out everything. Because I know there's not time. And I'm, I'm out of time this morning. And, but I, I, I have to go back to this scene for a moment of this precious broken woman as she remains alone with the only one in the crowd that has the right to execute her. And in place of a stone, he bombards her life with mercy and grace. He reveals that day, not just to her, and I think we miss this sometimes, But he reveals to her and the crowd around her who he is. That he is more than just light that rescues us in darkness. But he is the light of life that enables us to no longer live in darkness. He is mercy. And when you are alone with mercy... Your life is never the same. So for a moment, 